following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Real quick uh, vocabulary test. Just show of hands. Who knows the word shlamo? It's an English word. Shlamo? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. Let me tell you about the word shlamo. When Emerson was about a year and a half old, she started saying shlamo all the time. We had no clue what the kid was talking about, but she would giggle, shlamo, and giggle, shlamo, and giggle. No clue. Literally four or five months go by of this happening. No clue what the kid's talking about. Until we're having dinner at my my father and mother-in-law's, and she's playing with Chase and making Chase giggle and going, shlamo. And at that moment, we realized shlamo meant smile. Shlamo meant smile. And see, now to this very day, when we do pictures or something with the kids, we don't say smile. We don't say, say cheese. We say shlamo. (laughs) We know that that means smile. But you see, it took just the right context for us to grasp the particular truth of that word so that now it can be applied broadly in our lives. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and we spent three weeks on, we saw Paul command us to, to look above, to set our sights, to set our focus on Christ, to put to death our old nature, those old ways of living, and to live instead in the new nature that we receive as children of Christ. And if you remember in verse 14, he said, above all else, if you're going to put on this new nature, if you're going to live as this child of God, above all else, put on what? Love. We saw two weeks ago that that love is the central ingredient to the new nature that we live in Jesus Christ. But the word love applies to a lot of stuff, doesn't it? Right? You love your family. You love pizza. You love a certain weather. We love lots of things. So the question is, if we're going to understand this new nature, if we're going to understand the love that we need to live in this new nature, we have to answer the question, well, what is this love that Paul is talking about? And again, our culture, we could look to our culture, we could look to the world around us, and they'll give us lots of terrible definitions of love. They'll give us lots of self-centered, self-serving, feeling-based ideas of immediate gratification and say, this is love. But in Colossians 3, verse 18 through 4, verse 1, Paul's going to give us some pictures, some descriptions of the new nature love through three concrete examples and three, three understandable relationships. So we're going to look at this passage together, and then we're going to come back after that, and we're going to tie this all together and see what we can understand about this love that Paul is talking about and how we can apply that love to our lives. So let's start right here, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. And, and again, we're going to get three distinct relationships, three concrete examples And the first relationship is of 
the husband and wife. We're going to start in verses 18 and 19. And Paul writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. So wives and husbands, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Okay, Paul starts this idea of love by addressing the central relationship in the home. And he starts with the wife and he says, wives, submit. Two things we have to understand here. First off, this is not a cultural command. This is a biblical command. This is not a cultural command. This is a biblical command. You'll find some people who look at this passage and go, oh, well, that was a male-dominated culture, and so the call to submit, that doesn't apply today. Wives, you don't have to submit to your husbands. No, that's wrong. That is a terrible reading of Scripture and incredibly unfaithful. This is a biblical command, not a cultural command. But second, second, submission is not blind obedience. It's something much bigger. Okay? When God says, submit to your husband, what he's saying is respect, trust, and encourage your husband to be the leader God has called him to be. That is what it's the heart of submission. It's not a blind obedience. Well, I submit to my husband, so whatever he says, I have to do, and I can never question because I just have to submit. No, no, no. It's about a relationship where you want the best for your husband where you seek the best for him and you seek for God to do the best in him and through him as God has created him to lead your family. In Ephesians 5, we get a parallel passage to the one we're looking at today. And in Ephesians 5, verse 23, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, this is where Paul says, you submit wives as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, now some of you are going to go, well, you, if you knew my husband, nobody wants to submit to this guy. But the reality is you don't submit to your husband because of who your husband is. Wives are submit to submit to their husbands because of who their God is. And that is a major and important distinction. Again, we, we could talk about specifics of this and how this works in each and every relationship, but what it comes down to is wives are to submit, to seek the best for their husbands, to encourage, to trust, to respect, to honor him, and to seek for him to be the man God has called him to be. Wives, submit. Okay, let's stop there. We don't want to go into the next one, right, guys? But it does go on. It says husbands, what? Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. The word love here in the Greek, if you know much about the Greek language, there are many words for love in the Greek language that imply something different. In, fact, there's pro- in, in biblical Greek, there's about eight different words. Eight different words for love. The one used here is one you may have heard of. It's called agape. It's this agape love. It's a submissive and sacrificial love. Husbands, you are to submit to your wives and sacrifice for her. It means, husbands, your call is not just to make money, come home, and say that's good enough. 
The, the husband's call is to put the well-being and the flourishing of his wife and his family ahead of himself. So wives, you're to submit. You're to seek for your husband to be the man God has created him to be. Submit. Husbands, submit to your wife. Sacrifice for her. So this is where Paul starts. Wives and husbands. This submissive, sacrificial love for one another. But he goes on. In the second relationship, we get the the child and parent relationship in verses 20 through 21, where he says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Paul turns from the the husband-wife relationship, this partnership, to now a, a, a more stratified relationship of the child and the parent. The word for children here, um, some, will, some will tell you that the word here in the Greek language just means biological child. It doesn't have an age restriction, which is true. But in Greek usage, the word for child here typically means a child under the care of a parent. So a child still living at home under the care of a parent. And these children are to what? They are to obey. So children... Children, living under your parents' care, obey your parents. It's not me saying it, that's God. You don't like it, take it up with God. So parents, this afternoon, when that friction arises, just go, God said so. Children are to obey their parents. Why? Again, not because of who we are as parents. No, it's because of who God is. The family is God's design and adhering to it pleases the Lord. So children, obey your parents because this is pleasing to the Lord. But parents get an instruction here as well. Verse says, fathers, my translation says, do not exasperate your children. whatever your translation has for the word there, what it's really talking about is not discouraging your child. Fathers, we are called to help our children mature in the divine identity with which God has entrusted into them. Now, we go back to to Proverbs chapter 22, verse six. And there's this really important verse in Proverbs chapter 22. And it says what? It says, start out a youth in his way. And even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Right? And again, some people will take this verse out of context and say, well, see, if you just take your kid to church, they'll never leave the faith and they'll always be faithful to the Lord. That's not what that verse is talking about in any way, shape, or form. We, we've talked about this before. The Hebrew there says, raise up a child according to his bent. Right? It means you treat each child individually because God has created them individually. And you lead that child in whatever way God has created them so that they grow to know the Lord, to love Jesus, to serve him according to their divinely appointed identity in him. So fathers, don't discourage your children from being who they are, even if that's not who you want them to be. Raise them to be who God has made them to be. Now there's a kind of a... A side issue we have to address in this verse. 
because the Greek language here doesn't say fathers and mothers. There are times where when we read the Greek language, we can read into it brothers and sisters, right? Or men and women, fathers and mothers. It's very clear in the grammar of the Greek here that it's talking about fathers. Why does it talk just of fathers here? And why does it not say mothers? It's because men are called to a higher standard as the leaders in their family. Men, here we go. We are called to a higher standard than our wives, than the rest of our families. It started all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27 says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock of the whole earth and the creatures that crawl along the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Okay, so God created mankind, both male and female to watch over his kingdom. That's why Adam and Eve were put in the garden to rule over the garden, to watch over it, to protect it. But before Eve was created, Adam was created. And before God shows Adam his need for his wife, we see Genesis chapter two, verse 15, where it said, the Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Man was put in the garden to work it and watch over it, to be God's representative in the garden. This is before God creates Eve. This is pre-Eve. What does that mean? That means men, we were created to watch over and protect, protect God's creation. Fathers, we are uniquely called to protect, provide for, and to encourage our children. Wives, that doesn't mean, mothers, that doesn't mean that you don't have to do this, okay? That's not getting you off the hook. Like, no, fathers have to do this. Mothers, you can do whatever you want. No. But there's a unique call to fathers here to protect and to watch over. So children, obey your parents because this is fitting to the Lord. Fathers and mothers, encourage your children because this is your design in the Lord. Okay, let's go on to the next verse 22 through chapter four, verse one. We're now gonna talk about the slave and the master. So we've got wife and husband, child and parent, now slave and master. Verse 22 says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people, please, as, uh, people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the, for, uh, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Okay, so now Paul moves outside of the, the nucleus of the family, right? He moves outside of husband, wife, he moves outside of child, parent, and he talks about the slave and the master. When he talks about the slaves here, he's talking about uh, Christians serving, primarily the Lord and not 
the people they are serving. Okay, well, uh, what, what does that really mean? It means that whatever work the slave is to do is done as if the Lord was the one asking him or her to do it, not their earthly master. Right, we reread verse 22 where it says, um, obey your masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. It says work and effort is not about the minimum bar of one's boss, one's master, one's company, but about the higher calling of Christ, living and serving faithfully. Okay, now a side note that we always have to talk about when we come to these passages of slaves and masters. Does this passage, along with others like it in the New Testament, imply that God through the New Testament condones slavery? No, absolutely not. Even if we don't address the idea of the differences between Roman slavery and what comes to our minds when we talk about slavery, we have to remember that the Bible, every part of the Bible is written to a specific people in a specific place during a specific time to apply to all people in all places and at all times. And so what God does in speaking to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time is he speaks to their context. And, and what God does is he, he, doesn't teach, uh, he doesn't teach that, hey, whatever situation you're in is okay and it's good and it's right, I approve of it. But what God's doing is he's teaching his people to proclaim the love, grace, and mercy of his kingdom, even in the broken systems in which they live. We understand how this works, right? We learn how to proclaim the goodness, the love, the grace, the mercy, the sovereignty of God, even in the broken systems in which we live, right? Because some of us are, are parts of broken families. Some of us are parts of broken cultural ideologies. We all live under broken political structures. Some of you work under broken professional hierarchies. Because every system known to mankind that was made by mankind is broken because mankind is broken. So God's not saying I approve of every situation into which I speak, but God says no matter where you're at, no matter what you're living in, no matter what you're living under, no matter what the system and situation around you is, you can be faithful to me. You can love me. You can serve me. You can show the glory of my kingdom wherever you stand. He says, here's how you live out perfect love in imperfect circumstances. God says, slaves, you live in an imperfect circumstance, but you can show my perfect love even there. But again, God doesn't just stop with the slave here. He goes on to the master and he tells the masters to remember that, that in their role of authority, they still serve another authority. They are to be a reflection in their roles of the perfect authority of God. It's a reminder to the masters of, of Christ's authority and of the unity they have with their brothers and sisters in Christ that supersedes whatever social, cultural, or familial role that they live in. It really harkens back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, in Christ there is not Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, bar barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but in Christ is all and all. He says, masters, 
Just because you have some authority doesn't mean you are elevated. Don't forget you answer to a greater authority. Okay. So we've got these three relationships, these three descriptions of how these work. And there's many ways we could go about addressing this passage. But for today, I want us to look at the big picture. Not necessarily each individual relationship, but I want us to see through these specific relationships how we can understand the general characteristics of the Christ-like love of the new nature and how that understanding leads us to a better grasp of how to display that love in our lives. And so the first characteristic of Christ-like love that we see through these relationships is this. Christ-like love submits divinely. Christ-like love submits divinely. Notice that in every one of the relationships mentioned here, love is expressed at least in part by submission. Again, we said Ephesians 5 offers us a parallel passage, and I think it gives us an even clearer picture of, of this there. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Right, well, how do you do this? Before he starts saying how you do this in the specific relationships, you get down to verse 17, where he says, you show God's love, how? By submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he goes into these relationships. But all those relationships flow from the foundation of submit to one another, right? It's not about one party submitting to the other party and the other party having all the control. It's about a mutual submission that displays this love. This is how you walk in love as an imitator of Christ. You submit to those around you in love. Submission is, again, submission is the, the laying down of, of one's self-perceived rights and, and judgments in order to serve others according to their needs. Not about doing what I want to do and you better accept my help and that's good enough. It's about finding and seeing and addressing the needs of others and submitting yourselves in service to them. We know this is the way Christ operates. If we go back to Mark chapter 10, um, verse 45, a couple of disciples have just been arguing all along the road. Hey, Jesus, can we, can we sit at your right and your left hand in, in glory? Right, and what they're doing is they're, they're, they're making a power play. They want to sit at the right and the left hand of the king. They want to ha- be like next in line. And Jesus is like, you guys have no idea what you're asking. And the other disciples find out this conversation happened and they become upset because they really want to be second in line. Right? Everybody's wanting to be the, the, the top dog in, in, in Jesus' crew. And Jesus is like, you don't, you don't get it. And in Mark 10, verse 45, he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, that verse is so important. And if we're honest, I think most of us miss how significant that verse is. Because we read it and we go, yeah, well, Jesus, yeah, he he came to serve, he died, okay. What's next? 
But Jesus here says something really significant that we often miss. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Why does he call himself the son of man? Some of you know this. Why does he call himself the son of man? It goes back to Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel chapter seven, God gives Daniel this picture of God as the, the ancient of days, the ruler of eternity past, the creator, the one who is sovereign, reigning and ruling over all things in all, time, in all places and at all times. And then in verse seven, uh, in, in chapter seven, verse 13 through 14, he continues this vision and he says, I continued watching the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Daniel had this picture of Jesus coming. He didn't know it was Jesus. He said, it's just, it's one like a son of man who came, who was escorted before the ancient of days, the eternal ruler of heaven and earth, and was given all authority in all of creation for all time, a dominion, a kingdom, a rule that would never end, that would never be subject to anything else that would have no equal and definitely no superior. And so when Jesus comes and he says, I'm not one like a son of man, he says, I, the son of man, me, the one who's been given that dominion, that rule, that power, right? Jesus' disciples as good Jewish men would have understood exactly what he was saying when he says, the son of man. He says, even me with unparalleled power and strength and rule, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus was already the ruler of the universe. No one had a higher position than him, yet even he submitted himself to serve others. Even he went when the father called him, when the father sent him into the world, even Jesus came off the throne, entered humanity to be born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem so that he could live in this world perfectly, providing the perfect sacrifice, who would die sacrificially, shedding his blood as the payment for your sin and my sin, so that he could be laid in a tomb for three days, so that he could be raised victoriously as the conqueror over sin and death, so that he could be elevated to the throne, so that he could sit at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man, with an eternal dominion and rule and authority so that when you and I stand in judgment before the Lord, we don't get judged by our deeds, by the best that we have to offer, the filthy rags of the best that we have to offer. Instead, we are judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to love, to exhibit the new nature, we must submit just as Christ submitted. Submit to those around us. Again, submission is not being a doormat. It's not a blind obedience, but it's setting ourselves aside for the good of others. Our goal in life should not be to be satiated or to be satisfied. It's to serve the kingdom 
and to serve God's people. That doesn't mean you don't have goals. That doesn't mean you don't have ambitions in life of what you want to accomplish. But it's what's first in our hearts. Is it that we get what we want or is that we give God what he wants? How many of our interactions in a given day, in a given week, in a given month are actually serving to build others up, to encourage, to support, to lay our rights, ourselves down for the good of others? Christ-like love submits divinely. Second, Christ-like love obeys humbly. Christ-like love obeys humbly. Children and slaves were given the call to obey the authority over them. Masters are called to remember God's authority and to obey him faithfully. Fathers are called to be obedient to their responsibilities of their role as nurturer, encourager, spiritual developer of their children. Wives are called to obey in submission, to obey the Lord in submission to their husbands. See, we all live under authority and we are all called to a faithful obedience to Christ and through Christ as we obey the authority that he has placed around us. And this goes against every part of our, our, our culture existence, right? Everything in our world says, no, 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 no. You don't obey, right? You're, you're to be self-sustained. You're to be independent. You're to be self-suspicious. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're in charge of your life and you'll be happy when you get everything you want. How's that work out? Because nearly every problem in our lives comes when there's a failure to obey God's commands. I'm tempted to say every issue in our life. Uh, I'm not confident enough to say every but nearly every issue in our lives comes with a failure to obey God's commands. Either we have chosen our way over his, we have chosen to, to do our thing instead of his, or we're dealing with others who have chosen their way over God's. Doesn't matter how much better you are at your job than your boss. It doesn't matter how much more knowledge you have than your teachers. It doesn't matter how more, much more generous you are than your neighbor. If you are unwilling to be obedient to humbly obey the Lord by serving others, you're not acting in love. Humility leads to proper obedience, which leads to pure love. Now there's always a caveat when we talk about obedience, right? We obey to the extent that that authority does not contradict God's commands. God is our first authority, our ultimate authority, but we are called in so far as we are capable to humbly obey. So what authority drives our daily lives? Well, I know we're supposed to say God. You know that, right? Yeah, well, it's Jesus. Jesus drives my every thought, my every action. Does he really? Because if he does, you're way better than me. I'll tell you that. I wish I could honestly answer. It is always Jesus. I cannot. But what is that authority that drives our actions, our daily lives? So Christ-like love submits divinely and obeys humbly. Finally, Christ-like love serves devoutly. Christ-like love serves devoutly. 
if I were to do the bare minimum at my house, I think Aaron would feel loved. I think she would experience love from me. Let's say this afternoon, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch and she comes out. She's like, hey, we got people coming over. Can you, can you pick up the living room? I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So I got a football game. I'm sitting on the couch. I look around. The kids have toys everywhere. Which our kids don't make a mess ever. Don't. <laughs> but let's say, for argument's sake, there are toys everywhere. And I look around. I'm like, I like grab a couch and I just kind of try to scoop as many of them I can towards me and I get them under the couch as far as I can. I'm like, that's good. And Aaron comes out. She's like, what, what happened? I clean, you, you asked me to clean up. I cleaned up. Does she feel loved, cared for, appreciated? No. Why? Because I did the bare minimum. If Christ is first in our hearts, do we do the bare minimum? Christ is first in our hearts, then every effort of our hands provides an opportunity to show the higher calling of our faith to every person in our lives. Just before we, we got into Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and verse 17, Paul set the stage here. He says, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? The wife submits as is fitting to the Lord. The husband loves as Christ loves. Children obey as is pleasing to the Lord. The father's encouraged to fulfill his calling. Slaves obey as if obeying the Lord. Masters oversee with compassion, gentleness, and righteousness, just as the Lord does. To devoutly serve means that whatever role you find yourself in today, whatever state you find yourself in, wherever you find yourself through the rest of this day, this week, this month, this year, Wherever we end up, whatever our circumstances, we are to act in service to the Lord. That means that we should be the best and most faithful employees. That means we should be the best and most grace-filled bosses and supervisors. That means we should be the best and most sacrificial community servants. That means we should be the best and most mercifully forgiving customers, friends, family members. Wherever we have opportunity we are to show God's patience, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. Because if we understand his love and the way he has loved us with that perfect grace, understanding, and forgiveness, then we turn that back and we serve others just as Christ has loved us. The question is, do we devoutly serve the kingdom and the family of God? above our own desires, above our own thoughts, above our own opinions. Our culture tells us that love is an autonomous action of fulfilling our own desires with the aim of self-satisfaction. We understand this word love in scripture to be something, something else altogether. Biblical love, seeking the best for others, is an act of submission, an act of obedience, and an act of service to the good of others through the power of Jesus Christ. And so our aim as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who understand that we are depraved and wretched people, who live in, in conflict with that old nature, 
but who know that that old nature has been washed clean by the undeserved, submissive, obedient, and sacrificial offering of Jesus' blood on the cross so that we are able to put on a new nature of holiness, righteousness, and acceptance. If that is us, then our aim must be to share the love that has redeemed us with the world around us so that they can know the depth of his love in their own lives. We do this not because of who we are, what we have to offer, or even because we want others to have a a good life. We do it because we recognize the great and awesome nature of our God, our Savior, and our King, and we celebrate his unparalleled love, grace, and mercy, and we can't help but reflect that in our every thought, our every word, and our every deed. Church family, may we be a people of true love. May we not be a people of some nice, wishy-washy, accept the whims of my flesh, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me kind of love. May we be a people of true love that seeks the best for others. Always submitting over oppressing, always obeying over commanding, always serving over seeking to be served. Always leading with gentleness, kindness, compassion, and a conviction to the sovereign love of Jesus Christ, our God, our King, and our Savior. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the the gift of life that we have in you. And we thank you for the love you have poured out on us so richly. We thank you for the gift of your, your redemption, your forgiveness, an unearned, undeserved gift. And Lord, we repent of the ways that we have lived in honor of ourselves and in some desire to fulfill our own needs, our own ideas, our own thoughts. We turn back to you. We say, Lord, may you illuminate in our hearts and in our minds the truth of the depth of your love so that we may share that with the world. So that we might proclaim your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your salvation, not through the hands of mankind, but through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we reflect that same sacrificial love with every conversation, every interaction, every word, every thought, every deed. Lord, we love you. Thank you. We praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.